Welcome to the Jurisprudence, a podcast on jurisprudence. I'm Nikos Stavropoulos. And I am George Letzas. Our guest today is Nina Varsava. Nina is an assistant professor of law at Wisconsin-Madison. She has been publishing on a range of issues, including precedent, interpretation, and intersystemic adjudication. Today, we're going to discuss her piece on Dobbs and Reliance, which is forthcoming in the Harvard Law Review, probably later this term. Hi, Nina. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Hi, Nina. Hi, George. Thanks for having me. It's great. So I suggest that we start by giving you the opportunity to say a few words about the piece. What does the piece aim to do and how? Okay, so maybe I'll say a word about how I came to work on the paper and then I'll summarize it. So I started working on this paper after I read the leaked draft of the Dobbs decision last spring and I hadn't worked on abortion before this. And in fact, I don't see the paper as a paper about abortion, it's a paper about stare decisis. But I was struck in reading the court's decision and about its treatment of stare decisis and its dismissal of Casey's approach to stare decisis, which I had always understood as canonical on the matter. And I found the Dobbs majority's treatment of reliance interests particularly striking and questionable. It was clear from the beginning that the Dobbs case would receive a great deal of attention for its holding on abortion, but I figured that there was room for me to write about the stare decisis aspect of the decision, and that maybe not so many other people would be doing that. Nina, you mentioned Casey, and that is a judgment of the Supreme Court between Roe and Dobbs. Can you tell us a few more about tell us a few more about Casey for the listeners who may not know about it? Yes. So in Casey, the court was asked to reconsider Roe, and many people thought that the court might overrule Roe at that time, but it didn't. It upheld what it referred to as the core holding of Roe. It did adjust the doctrine somewhat and narrowed the right that was protected. So that's on the abortion front. But Casey is also considered to be a decision about stare decisis itself because much of the discussion there revolved not about whether there was a constitutional right to abortion, although that was part of the decision, but a lot of it was about the application of stare decisis to Roe and whether Roe should be upheld because it was a precedent, not just right. because of the underlying right that it protected. Right. So uh, abortion issues aside, is Casey a landmark judgment on stare decisis? Is it one of the most important cases one would go to to understand how stare decisis works in U.S. practice? I think so, and others have said so. But in hindsight, there was some foreshadowing that this court did not think of Casey as a good precedent on stare decisis, because in recent terms, it has conspicuously omitted citations to Casey, whereas previously the court had often cited Casey, both in its majority opinions and dissents and concurrences, would cite Casey on stare decisis, even in decisions that have nothing to do with abortion. But in Dobbs, it becomes clear that these justices did not respect Casey as a precedent on precedent. So tell us a few more things about what your paper is doing with respect to Dobbs. Sure. So first, I argue that stare decisis is meant to, among other things, enable people to form reliable expectations about their legal rights and duties into the future. When people can form those kinds of expectations, they can more confidently and clearly imagine their futures, form understandings about their place in society, and make and execute plans. 
And when courts overturn precedent, they risk undermining or sacrificing the values that stare decisis is meant to serve. And further, once we have a system of stare decisis in place, which we of course do in the United States, courts have a special responsibility to consider reliance interests before overturning a precedent. And that's because the courts themselves have, in a sense, induced reliance on their decision. So the idea is that the courts proclaim a commitment to precedent and people reasonably respond by relying on precedent. And when a court overrules a decision that people have relied on, it can cause unfair surprise. So that's kind of the setup. And then second, I turn to the Dobbs decision. So I analyze the Dobbs court's treatment of stare decisis. For the majority in Dobbs, only so-called tangible reliance matters for stare decisis purposes. And according to the majority, there was no tangible reliance here. I argue first that there was tangible reliance on the precedents protecting a right to abortion, so that even if we accept the court's narrow conception of reliance, their analysis was faulty. And I argue further that intangible reliance is relevant or should be considered relevant for stare decisis purposes, and that there was a great deal of intangible reliance on Roe and Casey. So with the overruling of Roe, the court forces us to abandon intentions, to change our attitudes, and to reimagine our identities and places in society. And in doing so, it undermines our autonomy and self-governance because we're unable to carry out the lives that we had imagined for ourselves. And the Dobbs majority demonstrates a complete disregard for that harm. Can you say a bit more about what is tangible reliance and what is intangible reliance? First on tangible reliance, it's easier. So the Dobbs majority insists that only tangible reliance counts for stare decisis purposes. Tangible reliance on a decision means that people took concrete action based on the decision that they wouldn't have otherwise taken. And if the decision is overruled, they'd be worse off in a material way than they would be had the decision never been made at all. So this is sometimes referred to as detrimental reliance. So suppose you and I enter into a contract and because I expect you to fulfill your side of the bargain, I make some purchases that can't be undone. But those purchases only make sense if you fulfill your side. And then suppose you breach our agreement Now I've lost money because of the decisions I made in reliance on the agreement, and now I'm materially worse off than I would have been had we never formed the contract at all. So that's a tangible reliance harm. In the case of abortion, what would count as a tangible reliance interest? I think, and other commentators that have embraced this narrow view of reliance interests have acknowledged that a tangible reliance here would be people who became pregnant while Roe was good law and now do not have access to abortion because Roe was overturned. So the idea is that at the time these individuals engaged in the conduct that led to the pregnancy, they had the belief that they would have access to abortion in the event that they unintentionally became pregnant or in the event that they intentionally became um, pregnant but then some complication arose that made the pregnancy undesirable to continue. So if they did not have that belief, which was made in reliance on Roe, then they might have made different decisions. They might have taken more precautions in their sexual activity to avoid an unintended pregnancy. So now that they're pregnant without a constitutionally protected right, they might be worse off than they would have been had they never relied on that right to begin with. And I think that the court doesn't explicitly mention this group, but it, I think, implicitly gestures towards it. I think the court and also others have said that 
maybe these individuals exist, but it's a relatively small group. So it's a tangible reliance, but it's not a very widespread tangible reliance, I suppose. And the protection that such reliance would afford them would anyway expire in about six months. Yes. Exactly, and some people have pointed that out. Now, the courts could have delayed the judgment from coming into effect in six months if it cared about that, but uh, it didn't. Right. You, you mentioned sexual activity, but of course, some people might have done IVF in reliance on True. the possibility of aborting any yes. implanted fetus in case of anomaly, which may be prohibited in their state following DOBS. But this is all the very narrow range of cases that would be caught by such a test. How about intangible reliance, what that would be? So the court doesn't say what intangible reliance is, um, but it does say that whatever it is, it doesn't count for stare decisis purposes. So what is intangible reliance? I think we can see it as expectations based on precedent that do not lead to detrimental reliance in the sense that we just discussed. So even if I haven't taken any action based on the precedent such that I'd be worse off with a precedent overruled than I would have been had the precedent never existed at all, I might have expectations in the precedent's maintenance and I might rely on those expectations in forming beliefs, intentions, and plans. And I think those kinds of expectations can be thought of as intangible reliance. Can you give examples? Yes. So maybe I'll give an analogy first, and then we can talk about abortion in particular, because I think some analogies help elucidate the kind of harm at issue here, um, because the harm is more more intuitive. So I give several analogies in the paper. The one I'll give here is based loosely on an English case. So convicted defendants who are sentenced to prison terms or presented with a policy at the beginning of their terms which indicated that they would be eligible for home leave once they served one-third of their sentence, provided they satisfied some conditions like following prison rules. So some of these prisoners, once they had served one-third of their sentences, naturally requested their home leave, but then they were informed that the policy had changed without notice. So the prisoners might have relied in a tangible way on the policy, but not necessarily. So let's suppose that they didn't. They didn't take any action that they otherwise would not have taken, such that they're now worse off. But they nevertheless would have imagined their futures differently, formed different intentions and understandings and visions of the future, and so on, based on their expectation of home leave. So the prison officials, I think, have wronged the prisoners because they led them to develop certain expectations, and then they dashed those expectations. So because of the intentional action on the part of the officials, the individuals are forced to abandon their intentions reimagine their futures, and reimagine their futures with inevitably destabilizing and disorienting effects. And the harm here might not have a physical or economic dimension, but that doesn't mean that it's not real or is any less important. I think that the in thwarting the expectations of the individuals affected undermines the autonomy and self-determination of those individuals by making it impossible for them to follow through on their plans and realize their visions of the future. And further, I think it's unfair because the officials themselves led the individuals to form the expectations at issue, and those ex expectations are now upset at the hands of the officials. In the paper, you sometimes talk about the distinction between tangible and intangible, and you just gave an example of what intangible reliance looks like. But you also discuss another distinction between concrete reliance and more abstract reliance. Do these two distinctions kind of cross each other? So could reliance be abstract but uh, non-detrimental? And could reliance likewise be detrimental but abstract? And the same for concrete. Could be concrete but non-detrimental and concrete detrimental. 
Some people, and I think the court too, I think sometimes uses these terms interchangeably, tangible and concrete. And I think that intangible reliance tends to be more abstract, but depends on what we mean by abstract, because I would imagine that we could have some pretty concrete expectations that are not reliance in the detrimental sense. Exactly, exactly. And many of the examples about abortion seem to me to be concrete in that sense, even if not detrimental as such. I wonder whether the, the adjective concrete that the court is using actually captures the relevant difference there. Can you, Nina, can you give examples? You gave the analogy with the prison sentence and the, the government going back on its promise to the prisoners, as it were. Can you give examples of intangible or abstract or other kinds of, according to the court, not worth protecting reliance in the case of Roe and abortion? Sure. Intangible reliance doesn't have the detrimental condition that we discussed when we talked about what the court calls concrete reliance. On my interpretation, the key difference conceptually between what the court calls intangible reliance and concrete reliance is that an individual might have intangibly relied on a precedent even if she didn't take any specific action based on that precedent that she wouldn't have taken otherwise. For example, an individual might have made decisions about what education and career to pursue and where, and about her relationships and family life, such as when to have children, all with the background expectation that if she became pregnant and wished to terminate the pregnancy, she could do so. Now that we no longer have a right to abortion, those decisions that the individual made years ago take on a different meaning than they had in the past and than the individual reasonably expected them to have. Some of the decisions she took might be riskier and just less desirable than she thought they would be. And now if this individual does become pregnant and has reason to obtain an abortion, she might not be able to follow through on her plans, which were contingency plans. For example, she might have planned to get an abortion if she unintentionally became pregnant before completing her education or establishing her career. And so after Dobbs, the individual doesn't have the life that she imagined and designed for herself in reliance on the court's decisions. And I think that's a significant setback to her self-governance. There is another distinction which you discuss in the paper. The Dobbs court said that star decisis is stronger when it comes to precedent that concerns statutory law, but it's weaker when it comes to precedent that concerns constitutional law. There, different things are at stake. Maybe what they had in mind, I'm not sure, maybe what they had in mind was the kind of political destabilizing effect that overruling has. And you quote Easterbrook, who says that actually it's the other way around. In constitutional matters, stare decisis is strongest, not weakest. Easterbrook says that the practice of affording less presidential weight, I'm quoting from the paper, to constitutional decisions is misguided. And here's what Easterbrook says. One reason constitutional amendment is difficult is to ensure that a supermajority of the people supports any constitutional rule, whether a grant of power to the national government or a constraint on the exercise of power by government at the time of its inception. Another is to ensure stability in the structure of government. The political branches and the people can plan against the background of known rules. So Isabrook mentions both the political branches and ordinary civilians. And then he goes on to say, ready overruling of constitutional cases interferes with both objectives. 
It reduces the stability of governmental institutions, denying the polity the benefit, if such it is, of continuity. Not coincidentally, it saps the drive for change in the constitutional text. Yeah, so I think his idea there is that if the court is just going to update the Constitution all the time on its own and not respect its own precedent, then that would seem an easier way to change the Constitution than having a constitutional amendment. For that reason, he thinks that having strong constitutional precedent is really important because if the precedent is really wrong, then we have, should have a constitutional amendment. I think that's what he's getting at. But first, on the difference between statutory stare decisis or the weight given to statutory precedents and constitutional ones. So yes, in Dobbs, the court mentions that the weight given to statutory precedents is greater than constitutional ones. Dobbs is not the first case where the court has said this. The idea, which has been criticized and questioned a lot, is that the legislature can just update the statute can essentially overrule the precedent itself if the court gets the interpretation of a statute or the application of a statute wrong. The court doesn't have such a responsibility to correct its erroneous statutory precedents. It should just follow them and the legislature can step in. In contrast, um, when it comes to constitutional precedent, the legislature can't do that. And constitutional amendment is very difficult. So the court, in contrast to what Easterbrook is saying, the court has said that it should be able to exercise more freedom to overrule its constitutional precedents when it thinks its constitutional precedents are mistaken. However, the court has also said that constitutional precedents protecting fundamental personal liberties are very important and should perhaps be given greater precedential weight than other kinds of constitutional precedents. And that is a point I tried to defend in the article for reasons that, Nikos, I think you were referring to, that it's especially important for us to be able to rely on basic uh, personal liberties, like the right to abortion, to contraception, to same-sex relations, and so on, for many reasons. Long-term planning, also our sense of our identities and our place in this society depend on them. And what good is a constitutional right if we cannot rely on it, if it's so precarious that as soon as the court's composition changed, it's likely to be reversed? Can I raise a different objection to the kind of argument you're making. Again, I, I don't endorse the objection, just have in mind what someone reading your article might think who might disagree with the conclusion. They might say, look, this argument is kind of being a bad loser. People who defend Roe lost the argument about whether abortion is part of the constitutional protection or not. And, and they're trying to win it on the reliance argument. So what they couldn't get on the substance of the matter, they're trying to win it in a different way by saying that we have to protect reliance on precedent. And this is being a bad loser, they might say, because if there was a different case, so say a case about the right to bear arms, they would welcome an overruling of the court's case law. And they wouldn't really be looking at the argument from reliance. So someone might say, look, really the substance of the matter is whether there's a right or not. If there is a right there, it doesn't matter what the precedent is, the court should really uphold the right. If there is no right, as one might argue there's really no right to bear arms that is protected by the Constitution, properly interpreted, then any overruling should be fine and any, any detrimental costs should be borne. Mm -hmm. And going back to my example earlier from Brown, all that matters is whether the precedent should be overruled, and that's what matters, not, not really the reliance. What do you say to this objection? Can I add something? 
just to make sure that everyone is uh, on the same page here, the Dobbs Court did not say that there is a fundamental right that the Roe regime was violating. They didn't say Roe is bad law because embryos are human beings such that destroying them is murder. They didn't say that. So they couldn't build an argument that would be analogous to the Brown argument. They didn't say everyone is equal and there is a fundamental right to equality such that the racial caste system in the United States in the 50s must be undone. That's not what they said. They said it's, the Constitution doesn't protect that right. It's a state matter. So they didn't go all the way. So this means that there are two kinds of mistake that the court may take itself to be correcting when it's overruling a precedent. A mistake that involves a fundamental right or a different kind of legal mistake. And the Dobbs Court takes itself to be fixing a different kind, a weaker, a smaller, less consequential kind of mistake. So just to make sure that everyone understands it, the Dobbs Court didn't say that abortion is wrong because it is murder. Yes, I agree with all that. So George's question. First, I don't accept defeat on the question of whether there is a constitutionally protected right to abortion and whether the court should have affirmed Roe on the substantive matter of abortion, even setting stare decisis aside. And I would have been perfectly happy with a decision where the court didn't deal with stare decisis and just reaffirmed uh, Roe on the merits. Of course. Some people have misinterpreted my paper to be saying that stare decisis is more important than the merits question. And so even though (laughs) Roe was wrong, stare decisis uh, means that Dobbs should have upheld it. I don't think Roe was wrong. However, because the paper isn't about abortion or constitutional law, really, I I don't make that argument. I leave that to the experts on substantive due process. But I think there are pretty easy arguments to make in favor of finding a right to abortion in the Constitution. But I think that even if we set that matter aside of whether Roe was right um, on the merits, I think that stare decisis matters either way. In other words, I don't see why reliance doesn't do any work if there was no right. I think that's the question you were asking. That's right, right, yes. So on the one hand, we could test this question of whether reliance makes a difference by supposing that there is a constitutional right to abortion and that Roe was correctly decided from the beginning. And I think that if that's the case, the reliance that has built up around Roe still matters. So then overruling Roe would be wrong for two reasons, at least. It violates the right to abortion, and the overruling would upset people's expectations that the right would continue to be protected. Now, the expectation interest doesn't necessarily coincide with the parameters of the right to abortion. Mm -hmm. So maybe the best interpretation of the Constitution is that we actually have a right to abortion all the way through pregnancy. But that's a right that the court has never recognized. So people haven't relied on the court's precedents um, protecting that right. The precedents didn't protect that right. So perhaps the reliance interest then would only extend to the right as Roberts conceives it in Dobbs, which is some meaningful opportunity to obtain an abortion after one could reasonably be expected to know one is pregnant, whereas the actual constitutional right would cover much greater access. So like the parameters of the two things can mm-hmm. come apart. Interesting, interesting. And, is, and do you think the expectation interest, which has a different scope to the right based on the on substantive due process, 
do you think that the existence of the right is a, is a necessary condition for the expression interest to be legally relevant, such that when you have an overruling which is correct in substance, then the court should not worry at all about the frustrating expectation interest. So in the case of Brown, could someone say, well, yes, the decision was correct in substance, the merits of the decisions were in the right direction, the doctrine of the previous court separate but equal was constitutionally wrong. However, by ordering the segregation in the way that the court did, there was some frustration of people's expectations, some people's expectations about the previous regime. And therefore there you have also an upset of, of legal interests. So, so my question is, is, do you think that the, the reliance interest is dependent on there being a valid constitutional right behind it or, or not? I don't think that the court's responsibility to consider reliance interests is dependent on there having been a valid constitutional right to begin with, so that the original decision could have been wrong at that time, and yet there's there would still be reliance to be taken into consideration. Uh, let's talk about the Second Amendment first, because one of you brought that up, and let's talk about Brown also, because I think that's interesting for, for different reasons, and it's a harder case. Okay, so in the Second Amendment context, I'm not a Second Amendment expert, but Heller is the case that protects individual right to bear arms. I don't know exactly the parameters of that right. But let's suppose that at the time, I would have thought that that decision was wrong on the merits. Now, if the court reconsiders it, I think that the reliance interest, the reliance that has built up around Heller and related cases matters, that the court should at least consider it. I don't know if I do a full analysis that I would say that the reasons in favor of overruling it outweigh the reliance, but I still think the reliance needs to be taken into consideration. Interesting. And so even if one thinks that Roe was wrong and that the court should have overruled it, I think that that's consistent with the idea that the court still should have at least considered the reliance interests at stake. Whereas in the decision, it didn't consider them at all. It gave no space to those reliance interests. It just said that, that they don't matter. Can I uh, say something about Heller? So there are three kinds of reliance. So we can have this guy who, in reliance on Heller, went out and bought a firearm or an AR-15, an assault rifle, maybe. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed you know, you know the model, Nick. Uh, you know, one needs to, to be prepared <laughs> you, for the you, end of you, days. You haven't bought one yourself, have you? Not yet, no. If I move to Texas, I might. So we have that guy. We have this other case of the business that is built, the business model, is that it would be able to continue selling weapons to individuals. And then we have a more unspecific and diffuse kind of reliance of people on their continued persisting ability to get a firearm if say, they so or they're so disposed and to live in a society where that thing is permitted. <laughs> so I suppose that on your analysis, all three are relevant to some degree. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. provide reasons that are cut in favor of upholding or against overruling Heller, even if in the end Heller should be overruled at the earliest opportunity. So th exactly. that is the position, right? Okay. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I wanted to propose a different way of responding to George's question which would be to deny its premise. So the question suggests that there is or isn't a right, for example, to abortion, separate from what the court has decided about the matter. But whether there is a right might be in part determined by whether the court has recognized a right. 
And that might be in part because of the expectations that the court creates when it decides a case. So it may not really make sense to talk about rights existing entirely apart from judicial decisions. Mm. Mm. So maybe before Roe, there wasn't a right to abortion. And since Roe, there has been a right, a right that has increased in force as more decisions have been made, upholding Roe, and more and more reliance has been built up around it. Can I say something that would reinforce this position? So you might say that in advance of Roe, there was an inchoate, unspecific, partly indeterminate right to control the circumstances under which a, a woman might become a mother. And with Roe, that was concretized and in that way transformed. So it was altered first by becoming concrete and specific and determinate. And also it was reinforced by the fact of recognition at the level of the Supreme Court. So you can say that. You, you can say that decisions by the Supreme Court contribute constitutively to the existence of these rights. They're not just diagnostic of rights that existed, whatever the court does. I like the epithet you just used, Nikos, diagnostic, because that's the kind of view I had in mind. And I have to say, I'm not really convinced by Nikos's arguments. I'm not sure I agree with with you, Nina, about denying the the premise. So in the right to bear arms case, I'm, I'm very tempted to think there's no such right Morally speaking, the greatest fraud on the fraud, American people. It doesn't. It doesn't cohere with everything else we know about the U.S. Constitution in terms of what it protects. So, if the court were to overrule this horrible precedent, they would just simply state in diagnostically what was always the case. And in that sense, and this is what I'm not sure about your position here. In, in that sense, if the change is constitutionally and morally right, then wouldn't it always trump reliance interests? Another way to ask you is, you say in the paper that reliance interests are pro tanto and you don't want to take sides on how much weight they have vis-a-vis the substantive issue. My worry here is that, well, if the substantive issue is discussed first and then we know that the overruling is in the right direction, wouldn't the substance always trump reliance uh, if they pull in different directions? I see what you're saying. I don't think we can always separate them. I mean, do you think that Heller has no force as a precedent? Like, it made no difference? I'm tempted to to disagree with George on this. I see Nikos's point about the the way he described it. So when he described the position of a business that has invested in planning. But but there, I, I don't see this as the right or instantiation of the legal right to bear arms. So what I'm trying to say here is that there's a parallel question about how one individuates rights. So the position I put on the table has an asymmetry in it. It says that a constitutional case in the Supreme Court can contribute to the existence of a right, but you need to start out with a partly indeterminate right. So in the case of Heller, I don't think that the view implies that the court gets to create a right where none existed before, right? So in that case, I could go with you, you know, we can just throw Heller to the bin and nothing will be lost. There was no right to begin with and Heller didn't succeed in creating one or nothing. But I would agree with Nina, if that is her view, that the fact of existence of Heller does create some reasons that come in favor of preserving it because it did lead people to count on government respecting and permitting those activities that Heller says falsely that are constitutionally protected. You need to have something like a right to begin with. 
So I see the sources of constitutional law to be multifarious, including judicial decisions. And I do think it's true if there's a judicial decision that is just a complete outlier and an outright mistake, then maybe we could say it doesn't have any legal force at all. And this is a Dorkinian point of view. But I don't know enough about the area of Second Amendment law and other legal materials related to Heller to say whether that's true of Heller or not. But I know that there's some other Second Amendment cases, and I think it's possible that there's enough cases and enough ties to other areas of law to say that Heller isn't without any force as a matter of precedent. I wonder why we necessarily need an inchoate right to begin with in order for a judicial decision to have any force at all. I would think that a court could create a right, and then if many other legal materials are based on that decision, then the right could actually come to exist over time, even though in the first decision there was no recognizable inchoate right. So interesting. I had in mind here a view that ties in with something you said earlier, we discussed earlier about the difference between statutes and the constitution. And someone might say here, look, the rights you find usually in constitutions, not just in the US, but everywhere, should be less hostile to history. So they have a close connection to human nature and rights you have in virtue of being human. We don't need to know much about the history of any jurisdiction to say that people should have free speech, should have freedom of thought, uh, should have private life, right to private life, which should include right to have an abortion, and so on and so forth. So someone might, might say, look, morality here calls all the shots, and history less so. So that's why we shouldn't really be so pressed to honor whatever rights are recognized in the, in the history, because these rights are really special. They're different to anything else we might recognize by our institutions. So one might say, look, you know, you cannot put on the same level the right to have an abortion, the right to engage in same-sex uh, sexual relations, the right to be free from racial discrimination. You cannot put them on the same level as, as the right to bear arms. And this is like a, a mistake you can point out very easily. You don't need to read much precedent. So I, I know this sounds like a very natural law position, but it does try to distinguish between a precedent in other areas of law and precedent in the Constitution by saying that, look, these rights are the ones we should have everywhere. We don't need to know much about the history of a legal system. That's interesting. I, I share the intuition that the right to a Second Amendment is not on the same level as the right to abortion. But I also think that history makes a moral difference and that someone's claim to a right to abortion before Dobbs decided was much stronger than one's claim to a right to abortion um, before Roe or even right after Roe. And I think judicial decisions are an important part of that history that then makes a moral difference. It gives us a greater moral claim to certain rights continuing to be recognized. So let's turn to the, the brown issue, which we've been skirting around. Okay, so I discussed this in the paper in a section on what some people have called ill-gotten gains. And I think this goes to the heart of the question of whether reliance is always a pro tanto consideration and whether there are cases where it doesn't count for anything. So I think that this is an interesting and hard question. And some scholars, for example, Lewis Kornhauser and Scott Hershevitz, have suggested that reliance-based arguments for upholding precedent are only compelling if the conduct planned in reliance on the precedent is valuable. So that would suggest that conduct in reliance on Plessy would not count for anything in stare decisis. But first, let's go just to the question of whether conduct planned in reliance on the precedent would have to be valuable. I don't think it would have to be valuable. Okay, there's 
a lot of conduct that we might not think is valuable, but that is far from evil or morally unconscionable. So I don't think that judges need to make any value judgments about the content of the plans or understandings formed in reliance on a precedent to determine whether the reliance interests warrant weight in the stare decisis analysis. So we might think that reliance interests ought to be protected not because we value the particular expectations formed or plans made in reliance on the precedent, but rather because organizational activity and planning enable people to exercise autonomy and facilitate self-government, and those things are intrinsically valuable. We might even disapprove of the individual's plan, but still think that they were wronged if their plan was based on precedents and those precedents are overturned thwarting the plan. But some plans and expectations might be undeserving of any respect or protection, even if facilitating planning activity generally promotes autonomy and related values. And this might be the case with reliance on Plessy, which permitted racial segregation. And other scholars, for example, Richard Ray, have suggested that. And the idea is that uh, we don't want to credit reliance on evil precedent whatsoever, so that undermining that reliance might not be a cost, it might actually be a benefit, might be a good thing that we're undermining those interests. And I think this might be the most plausible way to make sense of the majority opinion's treatment of reliance in Dobbs, even though they don't come out and make this argument. So if the justices viewed reliance on Roe as an evil, then it would make sense for them to give no credit to that reliance in the stare decisis analysis. So it's not that reliance interests would be outweighed by reasons in favor of overruling, because often the court does consider reliance at length, but then finds that it's outweighed. So the court's not afraid to do that. That seems a perfectly appropriate thing to do. But here, it's not that reliance interests are outweighed. Instead, those reliance interests would not count in the balance at all. So on that theory, the justices believe that abortion is immoral is what drove their refusal to count reliance interests in Dobbs. That's a position that the, do that the justices were not prepared to come out and defend. In fact, it made claims that are contrary to that position because it said it's neutral on the moral question. I think there's still more <laughs> more to be said about this. So okay. in, in in some cases, the reasons in favor of legal change might be so weighty that no amount of reliance would justify maintaining the precedent. And in some cases, the reliance might be ill-gotten, such that it doesn't warrant recognition at all. Those are different things, but I think it's sometimes unclear whether our resistance to crediting reliance interests at all is because we don't think they're even a pro tanto reason against overruling or because the reasons for overruling are so weighty that we need not even consider reliance. We know it's not possibly going to make a difference. So Nina, do you think that Dobbs itself is a valid source of reliance going forward in for future cases coming before the Supreme Court that the court would have to recognize the reliance of those who took Dobbs to be good precedent? It's hard for me to, to see exactly the <laughs> kinds of reliance at stake here. I think arguably there are some, but it's very different because it's not individuals relying on some right, right? It's actually, it's states that were given the right to regulate. Yeah, it's relying on the, absence of, on the absence of a right. Right, which is a weird thing, but I can imagine some people who are against abortion and think that Dobbs was a great moral victory. Planning their lives getting, around that. Yeah, getting great peace of mind from this decision, peace of mind that will grow over time, and they might rather live in a state where abortion is not practiced. And so I think that there will be some reliance. I don't think it will be as great as the reliance on the personal liberty right that Roe protected. Well, these well, people are right under Roe too, right? 
Yeah, but... everyone was always free not to have an abortion. And so those people will remain free to not have an abortion. But I know from what uh, people against abortion have expressed that it gives them great pain that some people have. Some others. Some others have abortions, so I can imagine some reliance on Dobbs. Nina, one last question about how, on your view, precedent actually works more generally, not just in case of Dobbs. What actually is binding about a particular judgment? Is it what the court said in its reasoning, or is it what the court did in the outcome of the case? Okay, so what we think is the binding part of a decision depends on our theory of precedent and ultimately our theory of law, and it's a very big question. My own view is that what the court in fact did in the decision largely constitutes the binding force of the decision. And that's largely because I think one of the main purposes that stare decisis serves is fairness. We care about people getting the same treatment over time. And there we should look to what the court actually did, how it actually treated the parties in the case. Now in the case of Dobbs, that would mean that the decision is precedent for something like the rule that 15-week abortion bans are constitutional or some norm that supports that rule. Now, what the court said about what it was holding is uh, much broader than that, because it said that Roe and Casey are overruled and that there's no right to abortion at all. And that is what people are taking the decision to stand for. In but fact, they, could be, they could be wrong, right? People could be wrong about it, yeah. I think that everyone who thinks about stare decisis and, and judges included agree that not everything the court says is binding. There's dicta. The court can express its opinions on something only tangentially related to the decision, and that's not considered binding. But then the question is, well, what exactly, if anything, of what the court said is binding. And we do have a practice, at least, of courts treating some of what courts said in judicial decisions as binding. In this case, Nina, we cannot cleanly separate what the court did in Dobbs, why the court said it was doing it. So a 15-week limit on abortion, the court judged to be constitutional. Does this holding necessitate the rejection of Roe? Or was this something that the court just mentioned on the side? The rejection of Roe was something that was very central in the majority opinion. Sure. But that but... was not necessary to upholding the law, which is apparent in Justice Roberts's concurrence because he wanted to uphold the law but not to overrule Roe. He wanted to maintain the, the core holding of Roe. So people have different views about whether Roe would have been maintained in any meaningful way if this 15-week abortion ban was upheld. Why? Can you I say it, why? I think, why? Okay, so I think for the same reason that some people think that Casey overruled Roe, because Roe protected a more expansive right to abortion, and some people think that if the right doesn't extend beyond 15 weeks, then it's a fundamentally different right. I don't think that. So I think that some important part of Roe would have been maintained if Justice Roberts's opinion would have mm -hmm. prevailed. I also just want to say that I, I do think that what the court said in its decision does also constitute part of the binding force of a precedent. 
And this is in part because people rely on what the court said, and in my view, reliance contributes to the I force see. of a precedent. So I think the force of a precedent is some combination of what the court actually did and what it said, and that it can be very hard to delineate exactly the binding part of what it said from the dicta, which is, which is not binding. But it's also important, I think, that on your view, the compatibility of what the court did with previous case law and propositions about rights is something objective or independent of what the court itself took itself to be saying. So, so the court yes. could have a view about what, you know, what they're doing, how it coheres with previous rights under the Constitution, and they may be wrong about this. So as far as the, what they yes. did is concerned, the court itself could be wrong about the effects of what they're doing and whether it invalidates or not previously recognized rights. Yes. Great. Nina, thank you so much. It was great having you on the podcast. It was really excellent. We could go on forever. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks a lot for having me and for your interest in my paper. We look forward to seeing the published version. I'm George Letzas. And I'm Nikos Avropoulos. And this was The Jewish Prudes, a podcast in legal philosophy.